who who am I talking to for this episode? Uh, you're talking to Elena Gomez. I am a poet and other stuff, and I'm living in Melbourne at the moment in Australia, but I didn't grow up here, but I'm here now. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's what's it like in in Melbourne? I've well, I've certainly never been. Um, great. Um, there's a lot of. I grew up in Brisbane, moved in my early twenties, and about three years ago. And I feel like I've been moving to slightly more progressive cities each time. Uh, Melbourne's got a really great history of activism and interesting political things that I still don't have my head fully around. But it's a really vibrant and great city. Like, I guess, uh, like a protest I went to in Sydney, there were people kind of getting mad when we all sat down, like other protesters who got mad when everyone sat down instead of moving along nicely. And that just would not have for example. People like to tear shit up a little bit more here, I think. Um, so I like it a lot. Uh, the weather is really shit. So it's like November. Um, so spring supposedly, began in around September and we've still been wearing jackets and I needed a hot water bonnet. So uh, it gets pretty cold, but it's otherwise really good. Great poetry scene. Uh, yeah, what's happening? Well, um, you know, I think a lot of Americans have a view of Australia as being really conservative. Um, is, is, that, is that the case uh, where you're at? Uh, I mean, yes on a big scale in terms of the media and the politics. Um, it's been getting worse. So I feel um, for all the supposed progressiveness in some ways, it's, it's still really awful. Like there's been, um, I mean, I'd agree, pick a thing and it's, it's bad. Bad, like about climate change, or it's about the treatment of indigenous people, whether it's about the treatment of like prisoners in general. Um, it's all pretty shit. But like, there's also there's also kind of good left wing movements here as well. And I'm probably in a bubble in that I know or see a lot more of that. It's probably true on why, but you know, yeah, I'd say it's also pretty conservative. And I don't think Australia has been able to have uh, become a race in a way that I've seen happen overseas. Um, not that necessarily heaps better, but yeah. All right. Well, in the acknowledgments to your book, you mentioned you were part of like a Das Kapital reading group with some poets in Sydney. So like, what was that like? Um, that's pretty great. Actually, um, I saw one of the poets so, um, last night because he was down for a reading, Toby Fitch. Um, um, it was actually his first book launch and it was, after his first book launch that a few people like there were a few of us sitting around at the pub and I was talking to my friend who about this idea for doing this reading group because I'd never read Capital um and this um I did a read and then he actually was overhearing someone else saying a very similar thing on his other side and put us together and I was like you guys need to talk to each other and that was um the poet Astrid Larange who's um actually a poet I was already interested in and reading. So actually somehow got our shit together and started doing it. I think a lot of them were doing PhDs at the time as well. So read difficult texts um, in a way that I did. And great to have like a group of people 
who are eking and open to reading capital, but were also poets. So I was just sort of hanging around poets and talking about Marx. Um, and yeah, it was really great. Uh, we, I think we did Freud after that, but then it sort of, everyone got busy with other things. So I didn't stick around for the end of that, but the Marx one felt really formative. Um, I speak for us, helped me get a language for sort of new ready, if that makes sense. Like I could see already ways in which that stuff was playing out around me. Um, and uh, I was working, I've been working in book publishing for a long time. So like it was a really great introduction to thinking about the role of book publishing in capital and the way it functions as a commodity. And things. Yeah. And I, are poets there, like I'd say more open to like talking about book publishing as like, you know, in terms of, you know, Marx, Marxism and capital, just because, you know, over here, it's over here in America, it certainly seems like there's quite a bit of hostility to that. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think there's a lot about it. There's academics that I think who look at, academics who are interested in um, the industry. I think Emmett Stinson is one of them, that they are probably a bit more kind of aware of those sort of dynamics. But on the whole, it's, like there's, the publishing industry in Australia is a lot smaller. So the main trade publishers don't even touch poetry at all. <laughs> a lot of the poetry presses are really small, independent run kind of, you know, whatever made. We are scraping money together to put the books out, I guess. And they're, they're really great presses, but I get like, I think there's like a, it kind of gives poetry a different feel to working because it's not, sort of market in the same way. So I don't think that conversation happens in the way that it maybe does in America. So I don't even know if people are actually hostile to it or just not even thinking about it. But um, Well, yeah. so, so um, you know, what's with your book publisher, how'd you, how'd you come into contact with them and how'd that happen? And what, and why, what, what's, I guess, their mission? Um, so Cordite Publishing is, um, it's, they're mostly an online journal, so they've been publishing poetry and criticism and, and sort of for a while, and it's run by Kent McCarter, and um, I think he's project a, a couple of years before it, my book came out. It's basically, like, it's funded by in his, his extremely hard work, like, doing it mostly by himself. Um, but he just sort of approached me and about a collection and then it was a long time before I actually had something to share with him but yeah yeah I feel it's hard to like I yeah I'm not sure quite what like I think he's sort of more interested in making a space for like young and old and emerging and established poets out um he's very like uh you can, like, I didn't feel like I was being sort of forced into any kind of ethos or anything like that. It was quite open. And he's, and there's a quite, like, a really wide range of poetry and maybe, a, like, a, I don't want to be mental, but more types of, more space for that kind of non direct poetry that is otherwise pretty common in Australian poetry publishing. So, yeah, I guess he's sort of made a space for, different kinds of poets to put their work out in book form. But yeah, he just 
approach me. Like we've known each other in the poetry world. Like I've known about Cordite for a while and had, had published some poems with them before. But yeah, it was a nice, happy, um, I guess. <laughs> That's really cool. That's good to hear that. Like it worked out well from you. Sometimes you hear some, you know, real, real horror stories from, from publishing. But um, I guess too, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, like what are, like, you know, what are some of your, I guess, poetic, poetic influences? You know, you have poems after Alice Notley in here and you also, you know, have uh, some, some Russian, inf some Russian influence through Alexandra Kolotai, Kolotai. And I just, you know, I just wanted to know, like, um, it seems like you're pretty influenced by some of like the, the New York, New York school type stuff. Yeah, you've kind of touched on my and then Boya as well was one of the poets I read when I was first reading poetry. Um, I mean, I've kind of mentioned a lot of them in in the acknowledgements as well. Poets from the States, um, like uh, Cassandra Galee, Jasmine Gibson, Juliana Sparrow, there's heaps more, but like, um, I've probably, I probably, unlike, well, I don't know, unlike or not, but um. I feel like I haven't read enough Australian poetry to be influenced by them, even though now I've been reading a lot more and thinking about them. But in general, my influences are probably the ones you've mentioned. Colin Ty was sort of my, um, I did a must, I did an MFA over the past few years that I finished a couple of months ago. And I was reading a lot and thinking about Colin Ty, um, in a not not really strictly biographical or political sense, but in a sort of her as a figure, and was I, I wrote a, part, a project sort of based around her. So I guess the some of some of the offshoots maybe ended up in this book or things that I had written while I was trying to write the MFA and couldn't. So it's kind of a reject pile in that sense. But um, I don't know. I don't know who else influences me. Um, I guess the internet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a lot of internet stuff in your, in your poems. Uh, I guess to quote you back to you, something that always feels awkward to do. You, you said in your poem, one of your poems, always reblog Angela Davis. Yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I think that's always true to always reblog it. But that was back when I was using Tumblr a lot and would just not have to say. So I felt like the reblogging function of Tumblr was an, a kind of making a mark in a creative sense without having to do anything. And so I just went and like, it was probably just looking at my own Tumblr feed at one point and being like, wow, there's a lot of Angela Davis here. But that's because there were people in Tumblr making really good Angela Davis posts and things. And yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Um, that's probably that. I mean, these books, these poems are written so long ago now as well that it's kind of, I don't know, if, I, feel, I don't know if they're still what I do, um, but they're definitely from that time when I was thinking about the internet more and using it in a different way than now. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I think probably a poem that, that, I, that I have to definitely ask you about is the, uh, what was it, the, the poem about making, but the ramen noodle maker? Yeah. Uh, that was yeah. fun. I like that. I mean, I don't like most of my poems, but it's not. I like that one. Cause I think I like it because people like it. Like people tell me they like it, so thank you um, for that. But I, 
again, it was like just the most offhand comment that uh, I was, there's a, um, batting a lot and not finishing my thoughts. Um, there's a journal in Australia called The Lifted Brow that published a lot of um, essays and criticism and fiction and a little bit of poetry as well. And they were doing a live reading event and invited me to read. And the theme was food. And I was just like, I had a lot of ideas that weren't going anywhere. And then my friend at work had just come back from Japan and had told me about the noodle museum somewhere there that she went to where she learned all these things about uh, of the two minute noodle. And then I was like, oh, oh yeah, that was that. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. But was that, was that somewhere outside Tokyo? I was just watching Terrace House and I feel like they definitely went on a date there in the Tokyo season. Oh yeah. That would probably be it. I'm, I'm going yeah. <laughs> to sorry. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> just plug in Terrace House real quick. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, I haven't actually been to Japan, so I feel like a total fraud writing as though I knew anything about um, But I just went and read about it. Um, and yeah, I just, I think this was a fun one because it was, uh, I wanted to play with that form a bit and think about what a list of instructions looks like as a poem and not just a list of instructions and what else it could do. So, um, yeah, so I ended up writing it for that series, but then every time I, like I've read it at a few things and it always seemed to get a good response. I think also like it's very, it doesn't take on the part of the other person, the person reading or listening to it. So it's like easy. <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, it's also, it's also funny too, I think. <laughs> so that, that definitely helps. Yeah. <laughs> like you have a quote, um, like you have a quote, I think by the maker of the thing, basically saying, I came yeah. to understand that all of my failure, all of my shame was like muscle added to my body. And that's just, it's both kind of funny and sad at the same time. I think. It's funny. It is funny and it is sad, but also this, I think just that thing of the body, and the idea of like what, just relating it to the muscle added to the body. Cause I think I also think a lot about bodies in general in my poetry. And so I felt like it, yeah, I didn't, I didn't mean it to be funny. And then people were laughing at it and I was like, oh, I guess it is funny, but. Um. Well, like in terms of thinking about the, the body, like you have an elegy for, uh, I guess oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. Natalia Molchanova. Maybe maybe you could talk a bit about that because I feel like that's definitely about like bodies at some on some level. Yeah. Um. So she. Do you know who she is, or have you heard of her? I I didn't really know who she was before reading the poem, but I Wikipedia her. So like, who is she, and how I guess oh, yeah. how'd you come to her? I mean, just, <laughs> I wish I had a better story, but I just read I read something about her, and then I was I was gonna write a I wrote I wrote like four really. No, actually, no. Sometimes I I rewrite the story of how I wrote a poem. No, I I wrote a poem very quickly about her because her story was just really um, something about it for me. Um, was I couldn't stop thinking about it, and I just I mean, just the idea of like what a what we put our bodies through for different reasons, and that like. 
it's such a straight like body our bodies are not meant to do those sorts of things and for, for us to create whole like careers out of putting our bodies deep underwater or in the air I don't know um it just yeah I think I wrote this poem really quickly uh, sorry I just found it in my book um this was also during a period in my life when I was trying to to be a doctor for some reason um as in like I'd started weights training to like be healthier and then decided like I can't just do something for fun I need to like really do it so I was trying to like train as a powerlifter and so I was thinking about my my body and that sort of strain that I was putting on it and the disciplinary side of it and that like she's she's doing that with her body I guess but um that, yeah, I think there, there's part of there's, there are parts of this, this poem, the article that I read, which I don't remember now. But um, yeah, and then I wrote it really quickly, and then um, someone looked at it and was like, "It's not finished yet," and I got really mad because I was like, "It is finished." I realized it wasn't, and then had to go back and a lot more, and then it became this. Does that answer your question? I mean, yeah. I mean, honestly, it's more. Honestly, like, I feel like with a podcast, it's less about answering the question and more just about going off on something. <laughs> so, yeah, no, you're good. Good, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like um, one of the longer poems in the book, the one about, um, the one after Alice Notley, and I think it takes place in Greenland also, really gets into similar, some kind of similar themes, like, with the body, I guess. Because it's like a recurring topic, I'd say. Like, you know, in that poem, you... In that poem, yeah. I guess you kind of you kind of mix it with some some kind of witchy elements too, and some of um, uh, like also I think you know like shame and hypnotherapy come up too. So like I guess like you know how does that yeah. how does that kind of fit together for you? That was another one I wrote in response to for a reading that I did for a festival in Newcastle called "This Is Not Art," and it I can't remember what the theme was now, but there was something about wait, I can't remember. Sorry. Uh, I wanted to write, um, it was after like this, and I guess a uh, misreading or like playing with the lines in the form of her poem. But um, I had, a, at that time, I think was really interested in, in witchcraft and bodies, but in like really uh, loose way. Um, and uh, I just, I don't know. I think it was really, really trying to use constraints of form to see what came up. So it's like, it was like the stuff that's come up here is just a real kind of blueprint of what was on my mind at that time because I don't think I was trying to write a had taken a prompt about, and it might, it must have been something to do with the time because. Um, yeah, the time that I did the reading, I remember looking up what when it was midnight or in any part of the world. It must, yeah. So Greenland is one of them, and that's here. But um, yeah, just the idea of taking the constraint of and taking someone like Notley's poems that are so like formative for me and that I really love, and you know, going, going like, what can I, what like, what does that poem like? What I mean. Uh, Sorry, thinking about that. Um, 
Oh no, it's okay. I, just, I guess uh, maybe I should maybe I should ask like how how'd you come to Alice Notley's work? Uh, through I guess just reading other poets talking about her. I didn't actually know. No, I think someone's gave gave me a book once of hers, and I started reading it. Um, and I've got like this hard copy of Grave of Light here. That's oh, in I the office. It's really cool. Um, and I think I think there were maybe just. All of these, like I was reading a lot of Benedict Meyer as well and Omeya, and um, they just sort of all kind of formed my reading for this period, this really intense period of time that I was just getting into poetry properly and talking to poets and going to readings and thinking about, like, thinking about my gender in relation to capitalism and thinking about, like, whether or not or how. I would ever think about having children or not. Um, and like, I don't know. Um, I, I guess I came to Alice Notley in the way that I have with all the other poets. I just, they, as soon as I start reading them, I feel like I'd always known their work, even though that's obviously not true. Um, but yeah, I guess going back to that poem, I think, yeah, the main thing I remember is, yeah, it's, it's sort of taking a really, really famous and loved poem and being a real brat and going, I can play with this and then doing that. So, no, but I think there's something about, there's something about doing that that gives me a sort of a moment or point of entering the poem in a different way. And I felt like I kind of got to deconstruct and X-ray it by, by doing that as a, as a practice. So it's like a poem that's a reading, like it's a poem that's a reading of an Alice Notley poem. Yeah, your your like poems really do seem like a mix of like kind of, I guess, using some of the like Bernadette Mayer and Alice Notley style New York school stuff, like in combination with, you know, like like a Marxist and feminist analysis to talk about, you know, like, you know, what it's like to, to live in the world. Like you have a line, like one of my favorite lines from this was, uh, I often think about my clothes, they aren't ready for a novel plot. And I, I don't know, that just kind of, for me, sums up, I guess, a lot of how you, you think about, you know, you're like kind of combining a lot of this stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, I think there's, I think, I think they are really combined. And I think it's like, poetry is probably for me, a way that I've, um, dealt with being in the world and so it just absorbs all these things that I pick up on and, and so the poets that I read at those times have become really formative in the style and the voice but also um like I guess I'm not I don't shy I I'm not scared of things being boring or banal like I kind of embrace the banality because I feel like that's that's really kind of crucial <laughs> to think about as a person, as a subject in a capitalist society. Um, and that like the, the relationship of materials and labor shape our, shape our experiences in ways beyond those, those relations, if that makes sense. Um, so I guess I sort of feel like there's a totality that I want to speak to and you know, it's kind of yeah, minor. And, and you kind of are doing it, I guess, through like a, the more subject, 
subjective angle of like the the New York school too, which I think is which is really cool to see. I think I'm trying to yeah. <laughs> I think that's thanks. Yeah. Um Yeah, that's not really a question. <laughs> it's a cool observation. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Well I guess too uh, maybe we maybe we can talk a bit about some of the internet stuff too, because that that really uh weaves its way in here. Like I think maybe in the preface you talk about, I don't know, Das Kapital and dank memes at some point. So I guess yeah, how that- yeah, how has I guess how has the internet, I guess, kinda influence some of the stuff you're writing i think it's been a place where i encountered all of these things that i couldn't have done at it was just sort of an onslaught um and i realized that i so i'm 31 so i'm thinking like i grew up with the internet at a i didn't grow up with the internet from young but the internet became a part of my life when I was in high school um, and when I was in my early twenties and moving cities, it was just, I didn't, I guess it's where I found out a lot of things um, more so than, I mean, even just knowing what books to read, like I would, I didn't really study literature. I didn't study literature at university and I didn't go to a high school where we learned, like I went to a school where there was English, but, we didn't really read a lot of books. So my whole, and my parents didn't come from an English, I mean, they spoke English, but they came from countries. Um, they came from India and Malaysia. So like, I didn't come from a literary family. So I think, I think the internet gave me, gave me um, avenues to pursue interests that I didn't know I had because I just hadn't had them presented to me as like, it was just never, never going to, my parents were never going to sort of encourage me to do an arts degree or to, to study literature in any way. Um, even though they knew I loved writing and reading, like they were like, you go to uni to get a job kind of. So I think the internet was where I was socially educated, but also like politically educated and, um, the way it's come up in the poems, I guess, is like probably speaks more to the amount of time I've wasted on the internet looking at stupid things. Um, <laughs> and I kind of feel like if I if I wrote this book now, like if I wrote these poems now, there would be so many more meme things in them because it's like it's almost dated. <laughs> I don't know, it feels dated in an internet sense no i didn't i didn't think so like what are the what what are like the australian memes like because um i feel like I, I don't really see a ton and i know it seems like american memes make it down there i think your prime minister is into QAnon. Uh, yeah we get we get lots of american memes um <laughs> i uh i think i probably only know mostly american memes but um yeah, I'm just trying to. Sorry, I'm just on my lap. I'm just trying to find some that <laughs> makes sense that I can talk about because I'm like, I guess no, I got it. Yeah, I, I can ask a question if you want, but you, um, can, you can go there's on. A, there's a BuzzFeed article called um, "Literally Just 100 Fucking Hilarious Australian Memes," but I don't know if that's by an American. Oh no, it's by an Australian person. I think. Yeah, Jenna Kalami. There's lots of. I think Australian memes are like about um 
um, specific childhood things from people around my age um, to do with like food or like things people did for fun. Um, like there's a lot of nostalgia memes, I think. And also think like memes around um, like, animals that can kill you. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> okay. probably the ones that you <laughs> there's, seems like there's like, a lot yeah. down there. But it seems like there's a lot of animals that can kill you in Australia, but that's just my opinion from uh, from Los Angeles. Yeah, um, a fair few, yeah. Um, there's also animals that can well, really did, hurt I, you, even if they can't kill you. <laughs> yeah, well, I did want to ask, too, like, um, it seems like a lot of the stuff you came across, like, a lot of the stuff you've come across that's ended up in your book is stuff, like, from online, whether it's the memes or, you know, the various poets or whatever but that like i guess mirrors my own life experience where i wouldn't you know i wouldn't be doing this podcast in a literal sense but also just in terms of the stuff I, i'm talking about without without the internet so it seems like for you that that's also the case that you know most of like the, you you just wouldn't be like i just wouldn't be who i am without without the internet is that do you feel the same way i guess yeah i think i i think i do and i feel like the internet has has shaped me in ways that I really wish it hadn't. And it's, I mean, it's great to see like how language evolves in a really short amount of time. Like I was just saying to my boyfriend the other day, I was looking up a TV show that I had started watching and I was just like, Oh, I want to read more about this show. And then one of the things that came up was, is blah, blah, blah show canceled. And I, the immediate thing I thought was like, Oh no, they've done something really bad. And then I was like, Oh, the question is literally like, has the show been canceled? And I, it took me a while to get to that point. It's like the like Twitter has just like broken my brain in ways that I can't even. I'll have the language for once I start writing poems about it. But um, <laughs> I don't know. It yeah, it's definitely made a big impact on how I relate to things. And yeah, like there's. Do you find? I don't know if you you have the same thing, but I find there are people that I. I can get along with really well online and then in real life we're just both super awkward and like can barely have a conversation but as soon as we talk on any other format we get along really well do you find that i i haven't really met a ton of people from online offline but I mean, I people am... i know offline <laughs> like people i knew first oh okay yeah i am just very awkward in general so i don't I don't assume that it's because of the internet. I just assume it's because I just assume it's my fault basically, which maybe isn't the best assumption, but okay. yeah. <laughs> That's no, a classic like, awkward go with, I guess. Yeah, no, but like I was going to say too, like, you know, like with some of the books I read, like, you know, my girlfriend would ask me like, Oh, how'd you find Alice Notley? Or how'd you find out about ducks Newberry port? And I'll just be like, I could not even begin to tell you how I found out about any of this. It's it's just a swirling vortex. And I feel like, I guess, poetry in a lot of ways is a really good way to capture that. I mean... I like... Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, go on. No. Oh, no, I, li I like it as a, like, documentation of things or, like, an index of of that sort of stuff because it, it's not really captured... Like, it doesn't really sort of fit under any category of thinking. Like, I don't think there's any... Um, yeah, sort of scattergun, but in a in a way that you can see isn't after you step back a bit. But yeah, yeah, okay. that's yeah, no, that's that's cool. That's just that's just how I that's just how I've I've uh, 
found this stuff works works for me, I guess. But um, <laughs> I, I I know it's not that that way for everyone. But like, I guess to to return to return to some of your poems, I wanted to ask too, like with with the witch stuff, like is that is that related to I guess some of the like I don't know, like Silvia Federici and some of those views of how witches function, you know, and I guess the capitalist system and that that makes like are you drawn to it for those kind of reasons definitely yeah absolutely and also just like i mean whatever whatever kind of scholarly shortcomings caliban and the witch has i still find i mean i haven't read it for years but i just remember going like okay there's a space in which the problems of capitalism and the problems of women are like enmeshed and inseparable and so that yeah i mean the witchy kind of aspect is is one that I approach as a, I think as a poet and not as a scholar or historian or even like a in a really rigorously political way. I just feel like it. Yeah, I think for poetry it works because it just gives me so much space and content to think through um, the kind of premise of like. I mean, I think she talked about like she was relating it to prim- primitive accumulation, and I, um, I don't think it, I agree with everything she said, but just the concept of like women's. Well, if we think about how bodies work and cap, like how bodies function or um, need, are needed by capital to perform its various functions, like it's so kind of concentrated in in women's bodies i think so um yeah i guess i was drawn to it for that and also just the idea of the witchy um vibe as a way of um of retaliating and in a way that was like men just don't get to participate in it so there was something in in that which i was drawn to and even now like the kind of witches that are around and the internet witches and everyone being into, you know, astrology, which is not witchcraft, obviously, but um, there's a lot of like people who take it seriously. And I don't know if I ever took it that seriously, but took it seriously enough as a way, as a, as a way of like seeing how it functions for, for young girls and for women um, as a space that they get to kind of be, whatever they want in. So I don't know. I think I was drawn to it for lots of things, but I don't, I don't feel, um, I don't feel particularly expert in any of it. And I, I sort of, I feel a bit like I, at the time, at the time I was really into it. And now it's been a few years. I just feel like I was like, Oh, this was just fodder for me. (laughs) And I, in a bad way, but I don't think it's in a bad way, but, and also, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think it was yeah. in a bad way. Yeah. And I think the thing with, with witchcraft as well is that it's it's about nature and it's about animals and it's about a, a different way of humans relating to those things that is that capitalism doesn't understand or capital kind of – there's no logic for that under capital. And so I guess that's the other attraction of it. Right. Well, so, yeah. I think that comes in, like, in the poem, um, A Crisis of Provision of Care. Like, you know, just also thinking about how, like, witchcraft – through like also thinking about witchcraft and care you know like that's just something as you're saying capital just cannot understand 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think witchcraft. Yeah. I think those things are related. And I think the, like one of the aspects of those early, that medieval kind of idea of witchcraft was, was one of care. It was one of women like passing on knowledge for themselves to, and future generations to take care of their bodies. And that's so that's like that concept of care is kind of, um, it's funny. It is, it is central to that type of women's kind of relationships, but it's also, yes, it, yes. Capital doesn't understand it, but it's absolutely like commodified it and like turned it into like care, care under capitalism is a deeply fucked up, like space I think and we see it in like how we treat people who have health care needs um how we treat like maternal health how we treat um mental health I mean I guess it's mostly in the health industries but even in the sort of education sense and like the jobs the jobs that that seem to be the least valued are the jobs that require care and are also done mostly by women yeah for sure and even though like sometimes i go back and forth on this even though like a lot of this stuff does end up commodified i also you know the famous marxist line of capitalism creating its own grave diggers which kind of to me rhymes with some of that stuff just because of the the gothic <laughs> overtures yeah. there yeah totally yeah that's a yeah no that's absolutely it's a great line <laughs> I mean, you get into some more anti-capitalist stuff too. I'm trying to find it. It's one of the poems I think in the in the second half where you talk about like, um, oh, I found it. Like you know, like what a bank tells you so it can sleep at night. You say, and you know, there's a lot. <laughs> I guess there's a lot of really straight up anti-capitalist stuff in here. <laughs> I guess you know, what's your what's your approach to I guess making that like poetic? I guess. Um, I think I think I have a complicated approach. I. One of my struggles when I write these poems is there's so many things I really want to say about those, that sort of thing, that, that line that you described. And I, I never know how to do it in a poetic way. And so I think those moments, those, those lines and that, like it's always in there in the poems where that like sort of underneath the surface, but um, I really struggle. I really struggle to integrate it into the poetry because I feel like when I whenever I try to write political poems they just read like they just read so uh basic and it's like I'm just saying what I think and I want the poems to do more than just saying what I think and so so the the line about like a bank needing to tell you something so it can sleep at night I think is just when I when I, one of the rare moments, I guess, when I was able to find a poetic line to describe what I was trying to, what was the name of that one? Sorry. Oh shoot, that's in a, that's in a glazed window with fat borders, uh, oh, yeah. hot and discolored. Yeah, um, that was a chapbook um, that I did for my friends. That, yeah, um, yeah. So, I, and also, I think, uh, I guess. The other thing is when I think about, because I think of myself as an anti-capitalist, everything I think about kind of goes through that lens. And so when I was writing this poem or this chat book, um, it was, I was working at Historic Houses, like government organization, I was editing text there. So I 
came across and worked with a lot of text to do with early colonists and like early settlers to Australia. And um, I think this one was a guy, it was, it was based on a, one of the sellers who was a collector of botanic specimens or something. And then I came across just all these, yeah. So that's how I got to the section of all the different timber and things like that. And I think also when you're absorbed in that sort of material and it's not only a, a history of colonization, but it's a history of like early capitalism in, in the colony and like how capital develops in Australia with people, with white people kind of coming here. Um, and so I think like, in that sense, thinking about thinking about timber specimens and thinking about people going out and getting timber to build their stupid colony houses or whatever, like that brings up thinking about capital and bank and banks and like metropolitan access, I guess. So, like they're sort of, I can't think about one without thinking about the other, if that makes sense. Um, so I guess in, in a way the, the, the kind of the anti-capital, stuff is just kind of there when I'm thinking about everything in the world, I guess. Yeah. In light of what you just said, like you have a, a sestina for memory, for a memory of work. And you mentioned earlier, like, I guess using constraints to try and think through something. So like, was that sestina, sestina uh, an attempt to kind of, I guess, think through some, like, I guess, work in the, in a poetic form? Yes. Yes, it was. Um, I think it was, Exactly that. And it was one where I hadn't, uh, I haven't written a lot of form-based poems and that was one that I kind of enjoyed doing. And I might write more, but um, uh, I think those, I think I was reading a book, I was at this place called Varuna House um, in the Blue Mountains, which is like a treat house. And um, there was a program for sort of writers in Sydney, which is, um, so Greater Western Sydney has a lot more kind of migrant communities and um, lower socioeconomic or like uh, first and second generation immigrants. And so this was a program for writers to um, get a mentorship and I was the mentor for that. So I was, I got to spend a week in this really beautiful house, um, like mentoring other people, but in between I got to work on my own thing. So I feel like this came out of something I was reading there, but I just, I need to write more notes about my poems because I don't know what I was reading, but the, the words that I used to build the Sistina from a text that I read at that house. Um, and I, I knew I wanted, I knew I wanted it to be about work and about time. So yeah, it was, I think the form, the form was really good for me. I don't think I can write other forms, um, but that one was good. So, yeah, I think it is It is a way that constraint kind of opens up spaces for other things to come out. Yeah, so was that, like, an attempt to think about work generally or also, you know, like, poetic work, you know, the, <laughs> the work of writing? I mean, if you say so. I mean, like, yeah, well, let's go with that. <laughs> That's okay. okay. <laughs> I was thinking about work in the sense of, like, it just sucks. Like work is the and so I was like, I don't want to write anti-work poems. Um, but yes, I uh, the work of I think I've, I've read about this in an essay recently. But um, have you read the? I think there's a William Morris book called Use 
useful useful work and useless toil. And he writes about the difference between work that's like that you have to do for money in order to survive versus like the work that we do to like sustain ourselves. And it's like artistic work is one of those. And I always think of like that's how I think of poetry is is work is work that I do that, that is me as an antidote I have to do in order to not have to death. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I read it as just an anti-work poem at first, but since you mentioned writing it at, writing it at a writer's retreat where you're, you know, mentoring other writers, it occurred to me, maybe you're talking about the work of writing. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that was on my mind a lot because I was working with really, I was working with quite new writers and it was, that thing of like realizing how I don't think I know a lot, but then when I meet people who are wanting to write and need that sort of, they need someone to sort of, you just need someone who can be like, yeah, it's okay that you want to write and that's a a good thing to do. And it's not weird or bad um, that you suddenly go, Oh, there's stuff that I have learned that I can tell them. And the, what are like the main thing is like the tropes that we all say, which is just keep writing and make it a, like how to develop it as a practice. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it must have, it's probably something that is on my mind as I write this poem because, and also because like I'm there for work, I, I'm working there. I'm also doing my own work there. They're like, they're, they are doing work by writing. I don't know. I guess, I guess it's all kind of, the things that you don't realize you're thinking about that come out in the poems later. It's very hard because I'm like, I don't know how to talk about it. I don't know how to talk about it. I can remember what I was trying to do, but what it ends up being is usually something different. No, totally. And I guess too, something that I like to ask people just something I like to ask people just generally is, um, you know, you mentioned it there. Like, like, so for, for you, who gave you like who or what you felt like, do you feel like gave you permission to write? Like why, like why did you take to writing? Um, if it's writing in general, um, I was writing when I was really young, like when I was barely starting school, I was writing like really, I was writing everything. Um, and I just don't think anyone gave me, permission I don't think I thought of it as something I needed to get permission for but then I had this really weird thing where yeah like I was really interested in writing and reading and everyone like the teachers and my parents were definitely like I mean I I only know this now because I was in my family home not that long ago and finding like old report cards from when I was in prep in grade one um prep is like kind of preschool I guess or the first the first grade you go to before you start grade one in um, some of the states here. But uh, it's interesting that, like, the comments were, like, keep encouraging Petty Read and Write. But I don't think I was given I, – I think I just went and did stuff that I wanted to do. And then when I was thinking about pursuing it more seriously, that was when it became a problem. But, yeah, I mean, in terms of permission, it's – like, I don't think my parents have ever – I don't think they knew enough about it to know what to give permission for and what not to, except when it came to what I was studying later. But yeah, 
but I see it in other people. Like I see other, I think there are younger people who I think like writing, but don't know, don't know that they can kind of foster it. And yeah, I'm sure that, yeah, I'm sure some... that I have, but yeah, I just don't remember. No, that's cool. No, cause there are some people it feels like I say, like I'll ask that question too. And they'll just like, they'll just have a specific instance or a specific book. But like for me too, it's just like writing's just always been something I was interested in, so it just kind of kind of happened that way. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's how it's been for me. But actually, with poetry, it's different because I don't think I ever like. So I was writing poems when I was like five or six years old, and I only know this because my mum, of course, kept them and has shown them to me, and that's deeply embarrassing. But um, uh, poetry that I came to sort of as an adult. I think I didn't have, I didn't really feel like I have permission to do that. So when I first moved to Sydney, I lived with a poet um, and I felt really kind of, I, I learned from her a bit what poetry, I learned about the poetry scene a bit um, and kind of got introduced to poets through her, um, as in like poets she was reading. And so like a lot of Australian poets that um, that are sort of well known here. and then I didn't really feel like I could do it then. I remember like being, thinking of myself as a fiction writer um, and not being, not thinking that poetry was something I could do because I'd never studied it and I'd never really known what it was. And so I think actually the Marx group is probably what gave me permission because we would go to start going to readings or they were probably already going to them, but I started going to poetry readings more and Toby Fitch, the one I mentioned earlier who read last night, he was running, he still runs, um, a poetry night at Sappho's bookshop in Glebe in Sydney and he always has an open mic night like an open mic section at the end of the readers and so I think that's probably if we're thinking about like permission or something like, that makes me think about being a poet I reckon that's really formative because it like just going so many times and seeing poets and then just seeing other people getting up and reading a wide range of quality works um, and not kind of being afraid to, I think there was this tiny part of me that was like, oh, I can do that. Like, if that's all it is, <laughs> I can do that. And then, yeah. And then started doing it. I was like, oh crap, this is really hard. But you know, um, I think having that space of being able to see people reading out new works and people who weren't necessarily like famous poets just going up and doing their thing. That was probably a big um, moment. Yeah, no, it's, it, I, I wanted to ask you more too, just about like the, the circle there in Sydney and I guess Melbourne now, like, you know, uh, was that like, so when was that? Was that like, cause I know like in, in America anyway, there were a lot of like capital reading groups after like immediately after like Occupy, was that like the same time period there? It was, yeah, it was probably like 2010, 2011. And I think I think there was probably uh, a lot of Australian poets noticing that in America and being like influenced a bit by that as well. Um, I don't think, I don't think the financial crisis in Australia had the same kind of blossoming effect around that stuff in Australia that compared to the States. Um, but there was definitely like offshoots of that here and people kind of watching what was happening and seeing how that was relating to our own lives here. Um, sorry, my cat's just scratching at the door. Um, oh, no, that's okay. 
Alright, I'm gonna let her in. Certainly not the yeah. first time that's happened. <laughs> I did a podcast interview recently with um, someone, and it was at her house, and it was her cat that was being annoying. So I was like, okay, my cat's here now. They all take turns. Can you oh, hear her cool. purring? No. What's what's the cat's name? I think I think the people want to know. <laughs> okay, so her name is her name is Eleanor Marks, but like Eleanor Marks, um, who is nicknamed Trissy. Um, our cat is also called Tussie, but yeah, <laughs> we've talked oh, about nice. getting more cats and naming them all after Marx's other children. And I like the idea of having like a bunch of cats called Jenny that we'd have to call by their other names. Um, but yeah, <laughs> she's Tussie. Yeah, that's a great idea. It's always a good idea to get more cats in my opinion. It's never not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah for right? sure. Yeah. Never not a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, also, I wanted to ask too, like, you know, you mentioned a group of, well, I also like, I guess, like, what's the scene like in, in Melbourne? Are you going, are you doing like, you know, lefty poetry readings out there? Um, I really like the scene in Melbourne. I feel like there's a lot of poetry stuff that happens. And I, um, I think there's a lot of lefty poets here. Definitely. Um, so I've I've sort of half been there's, we've been doing um, the revolutionary feminism group that has that the the one that's available online I think it's someone some group from the states I don't know I can't remember the name of them research cluster one you'd know it um, anyway we've been oh. doing that and I have only been to them but we were talking about doing capital again maybe or doing volume two. But there's definitely like enough of us around that if we wanted to do more, we could do more. Um, and there's probably some that I don't know about because I've been in thesis land for most of this year. Um, oh yeah, that's right. So like, what's what's the um, MFA experience been like in in Australia? It's not something I've really ever heard about. It's different here. Um, so most people don't do MFAs here. It's not it's not kind of the same as the states. Um, but people do like creative higher research degrees where they, and it's usually mostly in like the creative writing departments where you produce a creative work and also write a thesis on it. Um, and so you can do them as doctor of creative arts at a PhD equivalent level. Um, and I did the master's one, which was sort of two years full time, but I did four years because I was working full time while I did it. But uh, it's not as um, – it's a different thing. It's not as kind of the machine that it is in the States, I guess. I see it more as a way that people who want to create – do creative writing works. It, it's a way of being able to get funded to do that for a couple of years um, and then decide whether or not you want to pursue, like, academic career after that. But. Yeah, um, and because I didn't do mine in a creative writing department, I did mine at um, UNSW's um, art school kind of arm, which used to be the College of Fine Arts and then became Art and Design. But, um, yeah, so I was, I was doing an MFA with other visual artists and mine was in poetry, but, like, the other students there were doing them in sculpture or digital art or performance art. So I had a really different experience, I think, compared to what other people might have had um but it was really great because it felt like uh it felt like I could sort of I was a bit more free um 
to pursue it in a way that I wanted to compared to how I felt like it would have been if I had gone through kind of one of the more traditional writing departments or English departments. Um, answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, I think I, I think that did answer it. And I just wanted to ask too, not to make this about the United States again, but like, you, again, you mentioned in the acknowledgements, you, you came to the United States in, in 2015 and I guess you got to meet some, some poets there in person. Like, so what was, what was that like? Was that the first time you'd been to the United States? Cause, and I know I also want to ask you just cause I know you're really influenced by a lot of, you know, American writers as, as we've talked about. <laughs> I guess I am. Um, that was the second, no, that was the third time I went. So I went once when I was uh, about 17 or 18, uh, my cousin was getting married. And so my mom and my brother and I went to her wedding. Um, and we went to San Antonio and that was pretty cool. Um, and then I went um, a few years ago, my boyfriend was, who was doing a PhD at the time was, he went to the States for like six months as part to do some research things. Um, so he was in, I think he stayed in the Bay area somewhere. And then he, and then we met up. So I went to, I visited San Francisco for a little bit and also went to New York and, that was really cool. We went to, we saw, we visited like around the area and we went to Philadelphia, which I, and um, CA Conrad was doing a poetry reading above a pizza shop. And we were both, I think it was one where we were reading like Eileen Miles poems and people were, there were poets reading their own work, but everyone had just brought Eileen Miles poems and took turns reading them. That was really cool. And um, we went to a, the poetry project New Year's, day I think reading that they do or New Year's Eve I don't know um but we went to that and um had a really good time in the states then so this was I guess my third time going and it was it was so awesome meeting all these people but I was also actually just terrified and like everyone was really nice but you know when you just meet people that you're like oh I kind of just really know you through your work and I'm very impressed by you and I'm terrified of saying something stupid. So I think I was a bit of a scared cat that time, but everyone was really nice. And I got, yeah, I don't know. It was really cool. Um, I think from the, I, I'm sure there's heaps of problems and there's like, I get to sort of see people's various like fights and things going in the, all the bad things that go on just through Twitter and social media. But, um, it does just seem more impressive because there's just more poetry stuff happening. And again, like most things, it's like, there's just more people and there's more books and there's more everything. So it feels like it's more thriving, even though I'm sure there's lots of problems and factional um, disagreements and things like that. Um, but yeah. And I think, yeah. Yeah, that's it. I think like if, if we're interested in intellectual curiosity and developing intellectually rigorous kind of mindset, it doesn't, it's not helpful to think in those sort of terms of like whether something's, it's bad that we once read so-and-so or like didn't see something straight away because like that's the nature of, that's the nature of learning. Like you don't know something until you know it. Like you can't, yeah, I don't know. You can't retroactively learn things and you can't learn things until you've, until you're ready to learn them.
I think. Yeah, there's this there's this great idea I've I've heard about. It's called dialectics. No. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, yeah, so. <laughs> but yeah, no, I I don't know. That's just something that I don't know. I I think about a lot just how especially someone trying to get people to get interested in leftist stuff. Like how do you how do you do that with people who, you know, aren't like weirdos like me who have spent, you know, a decade online? Um no, I guess I guess um were you going to say anything? Sorry, what were you saying? Oh, yeah, no, it was just like on that. I was thinking I, I was part of the unionizing at my workplace this year that has I've been trying to do for years um, and pu- pu- publishing in Australia is not unionized in the slightest. So if this is like the first company to get an EBA, like an enterprise agreement, and um it was intru- it was really because like those sort- you had to have those sorts of conversations and i had to sort of learn how to talk to people about things when they weren't necessarily even interested and ha- and it's kind of how to how do you meet people where they are and bring them along without without kind of upsetting them or like inferring any kind of uh lack of knowledge on their part and yeah, like I felt like it was a huge learning curve for me. Um, but also just like seeing that people, like there's a different, there's different types of those sorts of engagements. Like not everyone, not everyone will be needing to read all the high theory in order to understand these things that we all agree on. And also sometimes they don't need to and they will for fun and like not have the same political, you know, some people read that stuff without necessarily wanting to have any follow through with political action afterwards. Like they don't turn into kind of activists or anything. They just sort of, you know, um, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is those conversations are weird and hard to have, but I guess um, I've been trying to learn how to, how to meet people where they are and I'm still really bad at it, but just not assuming anything based on whether someone knows something or not, because I guess, I don't know most things, so yeah. Yeah, I certainly don't know most things either. Wait, is that? Oh, I think I got that sentence right. I think, well, anyway. <laughs> I, think I got it right. But um, yeah. how how did the unionization thing go? <laughs> how how did uh, union how did unionizing uh, go at your workplace? I guess. Um. Well, it's it went very slowly, and we had the an arts union in Australia that theoretically support like is what we come under but had not really done anything in our industry and there was sort of a standoff on both sides because people in the industry were just not not really like publishing is pretty middle class and uh suppose I guess in some ways progressive but not when it comes to labor relations things um so the in the union had I think kind of lost interest in trying to unionize the industry and we it's, it's the labor laws in Australia are quite different from America. So I think we, ours are not great, but they're probably slightly better than yours, like in terms of protection. Um, but a few of us would in my department, like we sort of talked about joining and then some things happened that made a few people go, Oh, I should join. And so we started really small and it is kind of probably still small, but, um, it became easier to talk to everyone once a few people started joining and then I realised like they were able to talk to other people and kind of it became an 
an actual group effort and I, I learned a lot about the different reasons why people might join a union because for eight, for years I was talking to people and they were all super supportive but were like, yeah, but, you know, it doesn't really, it's not really going to help me that much or I'm giving my money for something that, like, can't, you know, do much. But, like, we just got our first paychecks with the new pay increases that we fought for and one of the one of, one of my colleagues was like, yeah, my union years of fees are more than paid for just with this alone, the pay rise alone. And I was like, that's like, that matters to people. And that sometimes is the way you get in. Um, but yeah, it was really interesting seeing all the different kind of perspectives people have on this. And some of us were more militant than others and that sort of thing. And like learning about how much of it is actually like negotiating with management I mean, I'm saying like anyone, I feel like everyone listening to you, this podcast knows, knows all this stuff way more than me, but I feel like I only just really properly learned it this year from an experience point of view. And, um, yeah, the way it went was very slowly and painfully and with casualties, but like we've got an EBA now and I feel like now we can probably like start organizing. <laughs> yeah. And other other publishers can, or other workers at other publishers can actually see what happens when we do that, and I'm hopefully more likely to join. Um, but yeah, yeah. Well, I certainly hope. Um, <laughs> maybe if anyone in publishing in America is listening to this, I certainly hope they they unionize because American publishing jobs are. I don't. I'm, I'm, you probably know this from <laughs> working in publishing generally, but American publishing is just. Uh, every time I hear something about it, it just sounds like hell. So hopefully, <laughs> maybe they can yeah. learn learn from what you've done and do some organizing. Yeah, but I think um, I think it's also I think one of the I didn't think I thought this was true, and then I didn't realize how true it was. But um, publishing is also just you kind of you kind of need to be a bit rich to do it in the first place, especially in the states and especially in the United Kingdom. Although. Um, United Kingdom does have unionized publishing houses, so they're much better off in that regard. But um, they're also really, really low paid, and you basically they're for people they're for like yeah people who have a lot of money and don't need to make a living from a job, and so they're able to pursue it and you know have the education background to be able to do it. And it's a it's a really really privileged industry. Um. So it's, I think that's a big, that's a big roadblock as well. Is that, yeah, if there are people, if it's like, yeah, if you've got like a bunch of, I don't know, Ivy League sort of interns whose parents just fund their existence, why would they be incentivized to get better pay? Like, I don't know. So I think there's other, I think it's also been true in Australia for, the industry, but it seems, I don't know. It's, I guess it's like the further away something is, the bigger, the broader strokes you see it painted in. So I have a much more simplistic understanding of those industries overseas and the makeup of the workplace compared to in Australia, where I probably know a lot more and have been on the inside of it and for all the problems or benefits can see all the nuances. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I- I talked to, I talked to a, 
Oh shit. <laughs> I'm really bad at this. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm leaving this I'm leaving this in to shame myself. Maybe maybe this will like make me better at my job. But um I talked to Jesus Christ. <laughs> I talked to another Australian writer on here, um, Trent, a couple times and you know, his sort of characterization of Australian publishing was that it was very, I guess, middle class oriented and that was something that has really, I guess, alienated him. Is he do you feel I I it seems like you largely that seems like your experience with Australian publishing. It's a kind of a middle class it's middle class so enterprise. It's the it's so middle class. It's kind of yeah, it's really middle class and it's really funny watching watching the industry sort of doing what it things needs to be done um to kind of improve that and it just like it's like pay pay people more and uh unionize and like like it just seems so obvious to me that if if they want to make it actually more accessible to people with different backgrounds like having having unionized workplaces where everyone is equally treated and you're not kind of relying on the kind of skills that you might learn from other class backgrounds that are more than others to like speak well and negotiate a better pair eyes and blah, blah, blah. Like to be able to talk the talk that you need to do the class privilege that allows certain people to do that more than others, like an EBA or like a union agreement makes everyone gives that access to everyone, I think. And there's obviously more that needs to be done in that area. But then also the other part of me is like, let it stick. Like, oh, actually, I don't know if I can say this on a podcast, but I'm just like, just burn it all to the ground. And like, who needs a publishing? I don't know. Um, oh, no, you're good. Uh, yeah. No, that were, <laughs> well, like, I've heard like American writers say that, like, you know, we need to burn publishing to the ground and that like, uh, people really come out to defend publishing when you say that it's just so un like <laughs> i mean if you were to do what do you think the australian reaction would be to you saying that i guess is what i'm asking um thing is like people people form tight bonds through these sort of horrible experiences and we like people see colleagues and fighting really hard to make things better and they see the individual kind of efforts that happen but we also see the really bad ways that like the institutional kind of and agendas shape the industry and I feel like there's too there are too many people who are too invested in those institutional kind of relationships um like you know you can't it's hard to it's hard to say something bad about anything because you're, you're like, well, we rely on blah, blah, blah for funding or this and that. Like the, the relationships are so like tightly wound and, and spidery. And yeah, I mean, I don't think it's that big a deal. I don't think that, I mean, there are people who I'm sure agree with me. I don't think it's that radical to say venerable to the ground, but I'm also like, um, yeah, I feel like people will, the, the thing that people will defend is one that it's like, no, we can make it better. That reformist kind of like, no, we just need to like make it more diverse and blah, blah, blah. Or that like, well, what other defensive, we know people who work really, like, these people are really great. How, like, how can you say that after all the work they've done? Which maybe I'm kind of projecting my own anxieties here, but um, yeah, I think. 
it's just really I think because I come from I come from a fairly middle class ish background but I'm also like a non-white person here and I think when people talk when I hear people in the industry talking about diversity it just shits me and I'm I'm not talking about the poetry scene I'm talking about the bigger publishing industry here because I'm just like your only your only job here is to make money like like, I just don't care like I don't why make it for everyone when it needs to be for no one I guess and like yeah returning to the Bennett to the ground thing but I think that's something I can't quite get away from it's also something that I'd say not happening sorry something I'm not saying should happen on its own I think there's a lot of things that need to burn to the ground but I don't think publishing is like this uniquely kind of angelic or I don't know what the word I'm thinking of is it's not above criticism and I think people act as though it's like pure and it's not yeah for sure people act like that here too like I remember this must have been this must have been early 2015 I think it was Claire V. Watkins said something like you know oh I want to like set in like a Maybe maybe at Tin House said something like, you know, oh, I want to burn publishing to the ground, and people were literally like, oh no, don't don't burn it to the ground. People are still trying to get in, and I was just like, oh my gosh, that's the exact reason we should burn it to the ground. What do you, what are you yeah. doing? <laughs> I I don't know. Yeah, sorry, that's just something that's been haunting me. No, what are you saying? Yeah, I I agree with that, and I think like that, like the reason that people, the reason that people are not. Getting- is related to the reason we need to burn it down like <laughs> the like uh instead of opening the door let's remove the entire building <laughs> maybe <laughs> i don't know you're saying so, really you're saying gen- a, so you're saying a gender reveal party for publishing <laughs> you cut off at the best point wait a gender reveal party for publishing what would that look like um well to to skirt around the terms of service here probably uh i'm imagining a large mushroom cloud maybe maybe uh maybe a lot of smoke and some some fire uh yeah (laughs) but um you know like something else with the publishing industry here is like you know, I'm sure you've seen American publishing loves to talk about diversity, but it's still, I'm pretty sure it's still literally 90%, 90% white. Like, is that this, is it similar in Australia? It's oh, pretty sorry. white here. Yeah. Um, but also, like, there are actually some really cool small presses and journals and things that are actually, I think, committed to it in a way that's not, um, that doesn't feel like a KPI, I guess, that are actually like, no, our, this press of ours or this journal of ours like is built up from the ground by people that like uh, it's amplifying and providing a space for voices as it's dry, as, as a driving kind of ethos alongside publishing exciting poetry and I think they're the ones that 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 kind of idea around diversity works in um I think it's probably to do with 
the types of people that are running those compared to, you know, businesses that are owned like by global corporations as a, you know, example, but also that it's, it, it is easier to, it's easier to be um, in line with that kind of ethos if you're not kind of, if you're more mobile sort of, uh, I hate the word in this context, but like agile, where like you're not kind of answering to the same people so you can kind of do what you want and you're setting your own terms for publishing. So I think there is, there are spaces that I can see and it, it's really on a community level and it's really like local stuff um but in the when you look at when you take a couple of steps back it's the whole thing is still really white really um sort of cisgendered um heterosexual kind of voices um but in australia one of the things that's a big theme here is like the relationship people have to like the bush and the land and there's a certain kind of uh, kind of oof. Australian writing is, is sort of interested in the land in ways that have made it all kind of the same. So like there's certain theme and these are by like settler writers and like white writers as opposed to, cause no one, of course, no one's publishing or caring about the indigenous voices that are writing about the land and writing poetry about the land. It's more like Australia's obsession with like the romantic ideas around the bush and, colonialism and so um like that's another kind of area of diversity is the themes that get published or the themes that get the most attention in prizes and things like that um I'm not sure what the American equivalent is but like Australian literature doesn't doesn't kind of think about urbanness I don't think that's a really broad statement um, there are books that do that but on the whole like the, the latest thing at the moment is like um, crime stories set in the bush. Like that's a big genre that's exploding here. That's been selling lots. Um, but yeah, it's not so just diversity. You mentioned like you mentioned some like presses that are doing like some pretty good small presses that are doing some interesting work. So like, what are some of those like presses? You, oh my god, what um, are some of those presses you think are doing good work in Australia? I think subbed in is a good one. Um, I think Cordite, I mean, they are also my publisher, so they're good. Um, <laughs> I like them. Um, who else? The Lifted Brad has published some interesting books lately and they've published some books in translation that um, I, that I, like they seem to be publishing books that I feel might not have been picked up by bigger publishers and so that's like a really important space um but yeah there's oh who are they the who are they translating just out of curiosity what are some of the stuff they've translated uh sorry looking up um <laughs> oh no that's cool <laughs> there's one by this indonesian writer in uh apple and knife um it's in australia i think she's based in sydney but also lives in, oh, she teaches in Sydney and also lives in Indonesia. Um, like they, they publish like, and who writes really interesting, and she writes in English, but um, really interesting. Um, okay, so, uh, okay, so this is a different one. This is um, Jamie Marina Lau, who is, um, 
it's like part Cantonese, part English. Maybe I haven't actually read it, but I I want to read it. Um, so I was finding the other one I was thinking of was Apple and Knife. Um, Intern Paramedita is the author of that one. So that one's translated. And um, I think Giramondo publishes some good poetry. They're like one of the main like bigger po poetry publishers in the country, um, and they publish other things as well. Um, so would they be maybe. like kind of like Grey Grey Wolf maybe over here, or Coffee House or something? Maybe, but they also published. Uh, sorry, I have to look it up again. I'm really uh, this is just, <laughs> like okay. out of my mind. This is why I have to write poetry so I can rub stuff. So um, this Indonesian poet um, Norman Erickson Pasaribu, they published his book. Um, Sergius seeks Bacchus. Bacchus. Um, learn how to say words for the first time on a podcast um but yeah he's i do that all the time it's a nightmare <laughs> <laughs> i'm like oh okay no they yeah so they've got that and like they do they do translation um translated authors a bit but yeah the there's heaps that i've probably forgotten um yeah off the top of my head those ones oh that's definitely a a good start and i'm sorry if i put you on the spot a bit for some of that it's okay. I just um, I just have really bad memory. So like, I know about it, but like, just names of things always escape me. Um, yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, but um. I guess is there anything else you you wanted to talk about? Anything else? Is there anything else? Um. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think I think it's so interesting to talk about talk about right like how I write the poems or like the things that have come up in my poetry I feel like um it's kind of this conversation has made me realize I need to kind of I feel like I need to think about things a little more I don't feel like I've thought about things and like oh yeah I should actually that's a good question I should find out the answer um for myself at least but um I... No, it's cool. It's not like you were John Ashbery. Every time someone asked him about a poem, he'd just say, "Oh, I don't remember writing that." So you just <laughs> better a better answer than that. Anyway. Uh, can I maybe I'll start doing that now? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if you start doing it, that'd be really funny. You should. I'm not saying don't do it. <laughs> at least we, we can tell me about it at the end of the podcast and not the start. Otherwise, yeah, that that, that was definitely deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. I think, I think uh, one of the things I've been thinking about is um, how how do I? I'm trying to make decisions in my life that will allow me to write more poetry, and it's really really hard. And I think when I'm looking back at these poems and like how cap and capitalism or how like all these random kind of ideas about everything go in there, I think there's. Um, I think what I see is like a fear of like things ruining poetry for me, like life things. And I feel like I'm in this moment in my life where I'm almost ready. Uh, things could very much ruin poetry for me in terms of like my work situation or my kind of where my, my head is at with things in my family or things in my friends. And like, I'm constantly, um, I'm constantly assessing and reassessing my place in in situations, and I feel like 
all these things have been really um, the opposite of what I need to do for poetry. And it's kind of like when you when you do some things, you sacrifice the ability. Like when I, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to put more effort back into my friendships and like re-enter the world and not hide from it that's when it's the hardest to write poetry and when things were like when I was hiding it was easier to write I don't know and now I'm like how do you do both things at once like how do you how do you be in the world and also write poetry because I think the first one makes it harder to do the second anyway that's I think I'm one good about. answer is overthrowing capitalism but um without doing that yeah. I'm not but sure you can't do that like <laughs> can I I mean, yes, but yes, you're right. That's the way to do it. No, I mean, I have that problem too, just because I, you know, I work 40 hours a week. I commute another probably 10. I do this podcast for maybe 10 hours a week. It doesn't leave a ton of time for, for writing sometimes. Although I did manage to write a poem about Jeffrey mm. Epstein. So I don't, I don't know what that amounts to. Mm. <laughs> um, that's like a really telling, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Can I read it? <laughs> Yeah, it's on the internet I've been somewhere. That. Um, oh, okay, cool. Um, I've been yeah, following that a lot. Yeah, is is Epstein? Uh, well, actually, is any is anyone in Australia implicated in that in um the Jeffrey Epstein affair? Anyone on the flight logs in Australia? Uh, not that I know of. I haven't gone that deep into it. Um, but I <laughs> maybe I don't know. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me, but. If they were like, I feel like they'd be so low on the list of like supposedly important people. Like they would just wouldn't register for anyone. So they maybe have been, but no one's noticed. I don't know. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think that's the other thing is like so you, like I don't know. There's just been really really awful things happening that have made it really hard to write. And there it used to be that writing felt like a good way of dealing with it and now I'm just thinking I just can't write poems when this stuff is going on but I think I think it's been a bad couple we've had like a lot of there's been a big number of deaths in Aboriginal deaths in custody in Australia in the past just like week or two uh, there've been like there've been bushfires um in New South Wales going up to like Port Macquarie where it's basically the beach should not be on fire um we've got you know people from the fire rescue services talking about climate change and then when people and the government's like still not able to admit that it's real um that climate change is, exists and that they are maybe uh connected to the bushfires um so it's just a, just really depressing and don't feel like there's any like reason to write poetry right now but i think yeah that that's always that feeling always does pass eventually but i don't know i think wendy yeah, trevino no, is a poet who does really good stuff with like the anger around that those sorts of injustices and political like fights and she makes it part of her poetry in a really powerful way but i'm still struggling to do that yeah, for sure she does. Uh, she, you know, f past and hopefully future returning guests of the podcast. But uh, yeah, she, I think she also writes quite slowly, though. I don't, I don't really think she writes a ton. 
uh, even even as she's doing that. Mm. And, you know, like I was even like with the Epstein, you know, poem I wrote, you know, some of it also was about the Los Angeles fires around here. You know, just like in Australia, there's been massive wildfires out here. It was I live on the very outskirts of L.A. because it's much cheaper and, you know, stuff was just on fire all around me for for weeks. Um, but, yeah, it's it's hard to write in those conditions for sure. For sure. I definitely feel that is is there anything else like you want you wanted to you wanted to talk about I guess in that in that vein? You know, I guess that like poetry is always there, so I feel like yeah. I don't know. I don't think I have anything else to say. <laughs> I'm gonna. No, that's good. Keep talking. I'm getting yeah. <laughs> but yeah, poetry is always there. So even if I can't write it, I can do it. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a really good note to probably end on too so so thank so thank you so much for talking thank you thank you for having me this is really fun and gave me lots of interesting things to think about and yes we the ending note i think should be that we need to overthrow capitalism (laughs) somehow (laughs) yeah thank you